0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org
1: I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. As I... hinted at, this last week, the Lord allowed me to address the topic of transgender from His Word, and as of this fall, as some of you know very personally, we have transgender boys who are being allowed to play as girls on girls' sports teams with no specified explicit statement that they're not allowed to go in our girls' bathrooms or girls' locker rooms. That's already here, and 500 public schools in Minnesota that are a part of the Minnesota High School League are being faced with that, and we have um, some of our Bethlehem families that are having to wrestle with that, whether they're a part of those schools or part of a private school that plays them in sports, um, God's Word has something to say. And I invite you to find the Bethlehem College and Seminary website this week if you want to listen to what I had to say. There's many other um, very helpful words being spoken that you can find. Uh, But we have a God who never sleeps. He's awake all the time. And He is very well, well aware of what's going on in the dark. And every morning, He wakes up and provides Lamentations 3, fresh mercy. But as we're going to see in our text today, He does something else every morning. Something else that is extremely hopeful for us in this room, and I look forward to seeing it when we get there. We're in the book of Zephaniah, and we are moving our way through this book. We are engaging now the essence of the Savior's summons to satisfaction, which comes to us in two parts, and we're going to wrap up the first part today. Stage one, seek the Lord together in order to avoid punishment. And then, stage two, wait on the Lord in order to enjoy satisfaction. So, we're going to wrap up stage one today. It's the charge for the remnant of Judah to seek the Lord in righteousness and humility. That's the second of these two parts in stage one. So we've looked at the charge to seek the Lord, the basis of the charge was stated, and now we're in the midst of this dual reason, expanding upon why it is that Israel needs to seek the Lord together. Seek the Lord together in order to avoid punishment. Last week we began to touch on this first part, but let's turn our attention now back to this book and just see how the structure comes to us. The command is given in verse 3 of chapter 2. Seek the Lord. If you're humble, if you're pursuing God, seek the Lord in ever-increasing ways. Seek deeper levels of humility. Seek righteousness. That is, to live in accordance with God's right way. Which means loving others. Loving the broken. Standing true when the majority are going in a different direction. Perhaps in this context... You may be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation, and Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Seek the Lord, all of you who are pursuing me. Seek Him deeply, because judgment is going to come desperately close, so close that it's going to touch on enemies right at your doorstep. And the first of those enemies is mentioned in verse 4, the Philistines. Seek the Lord because God's punishment is going to be very near, even at the door. And then at this, Zephaniah the prophet, he steps back and he begins to grieve. That's what the word woe means. He grieves in chapter 2 verses 5 through 15 over the state and fate of of the rebels that surround Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, look at the what you see, the first word again, woe. So he, he has woe against the rebels that surround Israel. And then in chapter 3, even though we don't see it until we get inside, he's rhetorically pulling in the Jews, the, those in Jerusalem, the Israelites there, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Well, what city is this? Well, we hear them characterize. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Well, Yahweh was not the God of the Philistines. Yahweh was not the God of the Moabites and Ammonites. He wasn't the God of the Cushites to the south or the Assyrians to the north. He is the God of Israel. Then it says, her officials within her, that is within this city, what city is it? Her officials within her are roaring lions, screaming out before they devour." Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. They're working in the dark, and they're not even leaving scraps. They're just preying on those unexpecting souls. The leaders are oppressing the congregation. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. So the very ones who are supposed to be proclaiming the Word of God seeing into the present, seeing into the future with God's eyes, are fickle, taking bribes, speaking, sure, I'll, I'll be a yes-man prophet. And Israel was full, filled with them. The Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, and it wasn't God's Word at all. Her priests profane what is holy, they do violence to the law. But the Lord... The Lord within her, in a certain city, Jerusalem. He's righteous. Unswervingly so. Passionate to preserve and display right order in His world, wherein He is supreme. Righteousness. And all who who live out in their character and in their behavior in alignment with God's definition of right order, they themselves are declared righteous. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Notice this. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. All around you, Israel, judgment is coming. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely, if I take down all the nations that surround you, if I take out the Philistines, if I take out Moab and Ammon, if I take out Cush and their authority over Egypt in this day, if I overcome Assyria in the north, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off. But they were all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Jerusalem. Pray with me as we look into this book. Father, these are dark days in our country, in our state, but I praise you that we are among those upon whom the light has dawned. The light of day is only agreeable because the light of noon is foreseeable. If there was no noon, then the shadows would simply be lingering night and we'd be prone to give up the fight. But that's not the case. Noon is coming and the light is already shining. Give us hope. Lord, I'm deeply comforted today that those who confess their sins, for those You are faithful and just... To forgive sins. I'm asking that this morning you would work some justice in punishing your son, that allowing that justice to be made into forgiveness for some in this room who need it. Work justice today. And then, Lord, there's many in this room who are oppressed and afflicted because real evil is not only knocking on their door, it's entered into their living room, and they need help. And I'm asking that you who know all things would empower them to not respond to evil with evil, but to respond to evil with good because vengeance is mine, I will repay. May they take comfort in knowing that you recognize the depth of darkness and you will deal with it. Work justice today, you who are always righteous. I pray, Father, that you would open ears and build responsive hearts to your divine discipline. I pray, Father, that you would help all of us in this room trust in you more deeply and draw near to you through the means that you supply the blood of Christ. Awaken us to your truth and encourage our hearts. I pray this through the only name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, the divine, crucified, resurrected, victorious Messiah. Amen. All right. Well, I had a whole bunch of notes last week. And we didn't go through them, but they're still on the slides and we're not going to go through them all today, but there's a lot of words that are going to be up here, so I'm just going to put them all up here really quick. And let's just look at each of these people groups, what God has to say to each one. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast! You nation of the cherithites It's amazing that he's actually addressing them. They're not in third person. It's one of the few places in the prophets where he, he doesn't just talk about the foreign nations. He actually, it's like, it's like Zephaniah went and talked to the Philistines. He says, you. And I, I'm still trying to figure out what to do with that. But part of what it tells me is that the message of this whole book that is about judgment day is coming and repentance is your only hope, that that also had a word to the Philistines. This is an amazing book. It's like the whole gospel message is going to be packed into this one prophetic sermon. A message of sin and punishment and restoration, not only for Israel, but for the world. You, Philistines, running from God, confronting His people, wickedly oppressing them. Know this, know this, judgment day is coming. And then we move in here, the word of the Lord is against you. That's like the curse of God. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I'll destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Now, there's no mention of sin here. We don't know what it is, but we assume that they did, right? And then we move into verses 6 and 7, which are just glorious, and I want to camp here for a second. What images come to mind as you read verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2? Think holistically of all that you know about the Bible and you're reading these verses. Paul? before you were talking in this book about how things would kind of going evolving, going back to voidness, yeah this is moving the other direction. It's moving toward a peaceful pasture, you know, kind of a recreation if you wish. Yeah. Yeah. So we have some kind of new creation here where the enemy is no more and, and the images of it's kind of like Psalm 1 image. You know, those who are meditating in the law day and night, they'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, ever flourishing. You, O Seacoast, that's... Uh, let me see if I can find Mr. Seacoast here. The Philistines are right along the Seacoast, right? That's who he's addressing. You, O Seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. There's, there's a, an image of rest and peace of, of new creation here. And then and we have to say, well, what happened to the sweeping away of all the wicked in chapter 1? He's gathered all of them for punishment. The fire of God has come down in verse 18 of chapter 1. God has prepared a sacrifice. And now it's, it's there. It's, it's all burned up and yet it must have been a fire of purification rather than absolute removal. Because there's restoration here. There's a a place on the earth that has been transformed. And who's living there? The remnant. The remnant, and then... So it specifically says, the remnant of the house of Judah. Okay? Okay? So that answers a question that we had when we were back in verse 3. What was the question in verse 3 and how does this answer it? Who's the humble? Okay, there's a there's a So the humble, there there are people from Judah who are humble. So back in chapter 1, we saw that punishment's not only coming on the world, it's even going to come on Jerusalem, on Judah, where the remnant of Baal are. But that remnant of Baal apparently is not everyone. There are a humble people and they're going to rise right out of the fires from Judah. What else does it tell us? What other question was raised in verse 3? Yet yeah, that perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden. Well, will I be? Is there certainty? He doesn't leave us hanging very long. There is a remnant from the house of Judah. And the, so the, the hearers of this are saying, I mean, the hope would be, I want to be a part of that group. And he's already told them where they need to be. Gather together and seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Seek it! And this remnant of Judah is all of a sudden going to move beyond Judah. Do you get that? In the Philistine, in the area of the seacoast, it says, the seacoast shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks, but then the image gets transformed. Lest you think that everything, all the cities have become desolated so that there's absolutely nothing there. Just pastors. That's all that's left. What do we read in the very next verse? What do you see in verse 7? Fortunes are restored. Yeah. So... With all the fire, the houses are still there. So there's houses in one image, and there's pastors in another image. So if you're thinking about pastors, what type of image is coming to mind? What's the prophet wanting to put in the minds of the people? Peace? Abundance? Pardon? A shepherd. A shepherd. It's something that's not explicit in this book, but it is over and over again elsewhere in the prophets. When they're talking about this new creation time, it's not just an age of new creation. No, there's a shepherd that are over the sheep. Notice that the people are called the sheep. It shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks, trying to put that together. But then there's a different image, an image that has houses, And in the houses of the very Philistines, now this remnant from Judah will be dwelling there. So it's as if there was the promised land, and now the promised land is just expanded to include the nations. You remember Genesis 22? God says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear me. You've been willing to put your own son on the altar... So I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. And then he changes the angle and he says, Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And through your offspring, all the families of the world will be blessed. So there's an offspring that will multiply like the stars and then there's an offspring that is a male, a singular male, who will possess the gate of his enemies. That's the hope of Scripture. And, but not only that, so there's a kingdom and a king, and that king is called the offspring of Abraham. And he has enemies. And the hope is that when he comes, he will all of a sudden possess enemy gates. His kingdom will go bigger than just the promised land. Remember Romans chapter 4? God promised Abraham the world. And this is envisioning a time where all of a sudden the kingdom has gotten bigger. It's gotten bigger to include Philistia. Suggesting to me that that we're actually seeing here the fulfillment of what was anticipated. Remember, Abraham's not only the father of a nation, he's supposed to become the father of a multitude of nations. And it's that offspring, that male royal offspring through whom the world will be blessed. It's only going to come when the Messiah comes. There's already a framework for Israel understanding this. That Israel, as a nation, was in the land waiting for the day when the Messiah would come so that the kingdom could go global. And that's what's being depicted here. A kingdom, remember, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden Adam was called to guard the garden and serve the garden. But not only that, Adam and Eve together are supposed to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. So the garden is like the Holy of Holies where they're actually enjoying the very presence of God. And that garden is in Eden. That's like a temple. And then there's other places. From Eden, the rivers are flowing. Out of this mountaintop temple, there's four rivers that flow out to fill the entire world. God created everything perfect, but it wasn't complete. The Garden of Eden was to be ever-expanding. To be filling the earth with the image of God. And now this depiction is that all of a sudden Judah, the remnant of Judah, is actually not living in Judah anymore. They're beginning to spread out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is supposed to happen after Judgment Day comes, after the fires of God have been poured out. How does that relate to us today? This remnant from Judah. It's a reversal of what was anticipated for Israel, because remember, they're supposed to go into Canaan under Joshua and live in houses that they didn't build and drink from cisterns that they didn't dig, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that they didn't plant. But that was in Canaan. Now they're actually sleeping in the beds of the Philistines. There's there's a reversal that's going on here. Something bigger, beyond just reclamation of a land. No, it's going global. Listen to how God promised Isaac in Genesis 26. Here, land and lands. Sojourn in this land, Isaac, and I will be with you and I will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. Sojourn in this land because the day is coming when I'm going to give you all the lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to your father. What oath is that? That I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations. Not just the father of one nation called Israel. Ruth the Moabitess, before Ruth, Rahab the Canaanite. Ruth the Moabitess, Uriah the Hittite. They became Israelites. So for Abraham to become a father of a multitude of nations, it needs to be more than that. There needs to be a time when people will not have to become Israelites, that is, become ethnic Jews, in order to be considered part of the people of God. We read verse 4. I will multiply your offspring, Isaac, as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, back in chapter 22, that blessing, the offspring, was not just general, a whole nation that, through which God was going to bless the world. No, it was going to come through a man, a representative of that nation, whom we know as Jesus Galatians 3.16 tells us God didn't make the promises to Abraham to multiple offspring as to seeds. No, it was to his seed, namely the Christ. So as I'm reading Zephaniah, now I read that there's a remnant from Judah that's possessing Philistine turf. All of a sudden that's bringing, awakening all these Promises that were already given earlier in the Old Testament. We're talking about an age where Abraham has moved to become the father of a multitude of nations, an age where this king must already be reigning. Back in Zephaniah chapter 2. All right, let's move on to the Moabites and Ammonites. It only gets more clear and better. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they've taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. I'm going to keep doing this, aren't I? I'm going to keep going all over the place. I should have had a better map. Moab, Ammon, they are on the east side of the Jordan River. So this is the Dead Sea right here. And the Jordan River, which flows out of the Sea of Galilee... You've got 70 miles right there. It's not big country. And up here are the highlands. Giant, giant, high, high mountains. With a flat top. And both Moab and Ammon, all throughout the years, gained great pride in their security. Very difficult to access these two people groups because they lived way high up in the mountains. And so they ended up giving gaining a level of arrogance. Now let's read about how it worked itself out. I've heard the taunts of Moab, the revilings of the Ammonites, how they taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. We've got a better place than you, something like that. Therefore, as I live and this is an extremely forthright declaration, As I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Hosts is armies. Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel. What's going to happen? Because of your arrogance way up there in the mountains, I'm going to make you low. You'll become like Sodom. You'll become like Gomorrah. So... These are two cities down here at the southern end of the Dead Sea that have a history. What do we know about their history? Sodom and Gomorrah. Who were they? Why did it what happened to them? They were destroyed for their rebellion and there was someone saved, namely Lot. Lot was saved out of these two towns. The fire of God comes down, and including it, including uh, rendering this entire region massively desolate, so that even to this day, there is massive salt everywhere. The water comes in and it never leaves. It's the lowest place on earth. You can't get any lower on the earth's crust than the Dead Sea Basin. And it's extremely desolate. Massive salt, so that you can just go and you can float. I could have shown you pictures, but it's okay. Um, watching Jason float in the Dead Sea. The, but what we read in Genesis 13 is that Lot picked this area to live because it was before God had brought the judgment on that region. Implication, all of the desolation that we see now in The Dead Sea region, even to this day, is still because of this punishment of God. And now, you up in the highlands are going to become like those in the valley. Now, it's even more direct, and we pointed to this last week. What do we know about Ammon and Moab's origin? Lot's daughters. So Lot is the nephew of Abraham who gets saved... Lot's wife turns around. She ends up turning into a pillar of salt. His daughters flee. Lot didn't want to leave. His daughters get him drunk one night, then the next night. And he sleeps with both of them and they each get pregnant with Moab and Ammon. There's a reversal that's being, impl- that's being testified to here. Ammon and Moab, now you're going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah as if you never left. And it's all because of pride. Now, let me go back. All right. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 9. There's mention again of the remnant. What do you learn this time about the remnant? Rob, The remnant is going to participate in the plundering. They're going to be part of the judgment. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 2 where John echoes Psalm 2 where we learn that God's anointed will thwart all of those who stand against God and His ways. He will thwart them with an iron rod. But in Revelation chapter 2, He actually applies it to the saints who are in the Christ. The one who conquers, who perseveres over the evils of this world, the one who conquers and who keeps the work all the way up until the end, to Him I will give authority over the nations, and He will rule them with an iron rod and when, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give Him the morning star. What is true of Jesus as the great delivering conqueror at the end of the age is indeed also true of the saints. They will plunder the enemy. And the survivors of my nation, then it says, shall possess them. So I want to consider this possession. Does this simply mean that it will possess that God's restored remnant of Judah will possess the land of Moab and Ammon? Or does this actually go one step further? And I want to propose that it does. That this is actually talking about some from Ammon Some from Moab, representatives of Gentiles who were once enemies of God and enemies of God's people, actually becoming part of the people of God. It's talking about people like you and me that Acts chapter 2 says crucified the Christ. How then can we be saved? You need to call upon the name of the Lord. So let's just look at this for a second. Turn with me first to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 1 through 3. Now somebody refresh us. What happened in Isaiah 53? Suffering servant. servant. So the servant of God, representing Israel, actually is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace is upon Him, and by His stripes we get healed. It climaxes with, the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief. And then it says that the very one who became a guilt offering will see. After he's dead on the altar, he's going to have eyes to see. His offspring. So look at that. Just turn just a few verses back to verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush this servant, the royal servant that's elevated in the book of Isaiah. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and he shall be satisfied. For the joy set before him, he endured. What was that joy? That on the other side of the cross, a people would be created from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. For me, Jesus says. He saw it, he anticipated it, that on the other side of his being a guilt offering, there would be resurrection. It's the only way I can read this text. So that the very one who was never married, our Christ, never married on earth, will have offspring. All by adoption. Not only adoption among the Gentiles, but adoption among the Jews. All of them. There is no one saved in this world apart from adoption by faith into the one who was never married, who has no biological children, and whose world is loaded with spiritual children. He has offspring. Now with that in mind, in this great redemptive work of Isaiah 53, now let's read Isaiah 54. We begin with an allusion, a reminder of Sarah and Hagar. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who had not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one... So she's barren, yet she has children and there'll be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now Paul picks this up in Galatians chapter 5. He got it from Isaiah and they both got it from the book of Genesis. God made promises to Sarah, not only to Abraham, but to Sarah, that she would have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. That kings would come from her. That she would be the mother of a multitude. Just like Abraham would be the father of a multitude. Genesis 17.16 gives the same promise to Sarah that's given to Abraham in Genesis 17.4-6. Sarah is the instrument. And yet, in her own life, years went by, right? Years and years went by where her womb remained empty. And it looked as though God was not going to actually fulfill his promise. So Hagar's multiplying with children, and Sarah has none. And yet God says, no, it's through Sarah that the promise will come. And God finally gives Sarah a child. Now, that is a little picture, says Isaiah. A picture of the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and The New Covenant. New Covenant is what Jesus is going to bring about. With offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. But under Moses, it looked as though, and it lasted a very long time. The Old Testament is three-fourths of our Bible. That's a lot of history to get through when the multiplication is not happening. The world is not receiving its promises. The King hasn't come. That's a, a long period of barrenness. But then the day will come when the barren one, it's as if the Abrahamic covenant hasn't ultimately given birth to the global vision. And yet, and and so Hagar is like the Mosaic covenant, and the barren one is Sarah waiting, waiting, waiting. When will the offspring come? And it says here, the Offspring, the children of the barren one, will be more than the children of the married one. More children. And yet, look at what it says in verse 1. She'll have children and yet never have to go through labor. It's one of the reasons we chose to adopt twins rather than have them. We got to get our twins, but they came at age two. And it was, they even came potty trained. <laughs> but hear this. She's going to have children. And yet, she will have never had to go through the curse of pain and childbirth. It says explicitly, she's never been in labor. And she didn't bear Yet she has kids. Who are these kids? Who is this offspring? It's the offspring of the one who went through the curse on her behalf. In the previous chapter, who himself now has offspring? Let's read the rest of the verses. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Make your tent bigger, because it's going to get filled up. People are going to be dwelling inside of it. Remember Genesis chapter 9. The promise was that Shem, his tent, would be filled up with his brothers. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three people from whom all the peoples of the world come. And the Shem, Shem is the Semites, that is, from whom Israel rises. And now his tent's going to have to get mighty big, because all of his brothers are going to begin to dwell in it. Look at it. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring shall possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. What is that possession there? We see it again right there. Possession of the nations. I think the tent's getting bigger. Because the nations are what 's filling it no, no the desolate i 'm saying the desolate one and and I could argue this more, uh, but it not in this class um, the barren one, I believe is Sarah Hagar, she becomes the wife of Abraham and Ishmael becomes a picture of the Mosaic covenant and Isaac is the picture of the new covenant. Turn with me to the very final verse of Amos and then I need someone to turn to uh, Acts 15. Final verses of Amos. We're going to see the same language of possession and we want to figure out what it means. In that future day, Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that future day I will raise up the booth of David, that's a tent, that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So Edom, which is what Obadiah, the very next book, is about, Edom is representative of the nations who are going to be gathered into the tent of David. Now that we're reading it rightly, somebody look for me up in Acts chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. Acts 15, 17 and 18. Remember the Jerusalem council, Paul and Barnabas show up and they say, and the question is, should Paul and Barnabas be allowed to preach to the Gentiles the hope of the kingdom of God? And James, the elder, stands up and says, don't you remember what Amos said? He promised us that we would possess the nations, and that didn't just mean their land, it meant their people. That there would be some from the nations who wouldn't be burned up, but that there would be, rather, people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation who would be brought into the one family of God. Acts chapter 15, 17 and 18. Somebody read that good and loud. Brother Rick. After this I will reach verses fifteen. And with this the words of the prophet agree, it just as it is written. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David and his fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the
0: Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old.
1: Therefore, Let Paul and Barnabas do their ministry among the Gentiles. Let's go back to Zephaniah chapter 2. Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them. The survivors of my nation shall possess them. The exact same language that is used at the end of Amos to talk about there's going to be Gentiles who are going to encounter the living God and actually be part of His place, His people. So, the house of Judah is the remnant, but now the very house of Judah reconstituted around the person of the Messiah, twelve disciples representing the twelve tribes of Israel, A reconstituted people of God who now get sent out, and the people of God get bigger from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There's a vision of restoration coming after the fires of judgment. And we say, Have the fires of judgment come yet? Are we living in the fulfillment of this, or are we not? God has prepared a sacrifice. And all of His fiery wrath will be burned down upon that sacrifice. Has that happened yet? Anybody? We have one yes. How many are cautious and say, well, I didn't think so? Okay. And how many are saying, well, isn't that what Jesus does for us? Okay? And I believe, I don't know if it'll be next week now, I think both are true. The New Testament is clear that what happens at the cross is the darkness and gloom of the day of the Lord. It was the very judgment of God that he anticipated at the end of the age. And what we're going to see in the very following verses, beginning in verse 8 and following, is that the very judgment of God has been poured out for all who are in Christ, and that the nations are already gathering. Already. But that the judgment of God still will be poured out on all for whom... Christ hasn't died. So the future judgment gets brought into the present so that new creation is already dawned upon us. Behold, the old has already gone, the new has already come. And because of that, we have to understand that claiming turf in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is the ends of the earth. That was envisioned even in these oracles. That just as the movement of God through Paul and Barnabas is a fulfillment of the end, the last verses of Amos, believe me, David has come. He is the person of Jesus. He is the ultimate son of David, who is risen, who is right now seated on this throne. He obeyed even to the point of death. And now God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. He is already bearing all authority in heaven and on earth because the fires of judgment already came upon him and he is beginning to work new creation in the lives of all of us. And yet the old creation is still here. Sin is apparent and darkness is real. So there is an overlap of the ages where the future has come into the present even while the old age in Adam, all the curse, all the brokenness still exists and there is an overlap of the ages. Right now, Hebrews says, it doesn't appear that everything has been subjected to him but he wants us to know it indeed has. And it will become apparent when we see his face.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.